double dip. <laughs> That's so not Christian to double dip. <laughs> Don't do that if you're at a party. We're judging you. <laughs> um, you unrelated to uh, what we're going to discuss today. That's, that song we just sung is one of my favorite songs. And there are like two components of that song that just speaks to, speaks to my discipleship, but also speaks to the hope that I want, you know, where he's like prone to wonder. The older I get spiritually, I don't want to wander the way I used to want to wander, but I am prone to wander. I could just want to, oh, let me try to see how I could finagle what Jesus is calling me to. But then the other part where he's like, how your kindness yet pursues me. Man, God does not treat me as my sins deserve, and I'm so grateful for that. And I look forward to seeing God, and prayerfully, he's like, you're a knucklehead, but I love you. And I'm like, amen, bro. (laughs) I won't call God bro. (laughs) I will not refer to the living God as bro. Unless he he prefers that, then I will call him bro. You call call God whatever it is. I'll call Jesus. No, I wouldn't even call Jesus bro, too, unless he's like, oh, it's totally cool if you can call me bro. I'm like, all right, cool. But I, I got to get their permission. And so I, prior to becoming a Christian, cheated on an exam. Yes. I've actually cheated a lot through my years, honestly. So this isn't an isolated situation. So my sophomore year, semester before I became a follower of Jesus, so it was before I became a Christian. I was in a very difficult class, and I was taking 15 credits. If anyone knows how the college system works, 15 credits are about five classes. And I was working. And, you know, I, 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 I was doing really well as a college student. I had like a 3.3 GPA and all this other stuff. But I knew how to game the system. I live to game the system. And so... My first day in my QMB, Quantitative Methods for Business class, I already decided that I wasn't going to do any of the work. I was going to cheat. So I just had to figure out how I was going to do it. And so I'm looking in the class, and lo and behold, the Lord blessed us with a couple of athletes. Athletes know how to cheat. I went to um, FIU University. They do. They're some of the best cheaters in the world. And, (laughs) And so... I knew one of the athletes, he had played um, college football, and I said, dude, so what's the game plan? And he's like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you know what the game plan is. And I'm like, he's like, uh, tell me what's the game plan. He's like, the TA actually has the exams, and we're going to pursue it. And I'm like, okay, cool. So we worked it all out, and our first test was probably three, four weeks into the semester, and I already had the TA's exam. So there were three different tests that we were going to be given, and I had, it under- I had it understood how to answer all these. Now, because I have cheated a lot in my life, I know not to get 100. I know not to get 100. 100 is trouble. You got to get like a B. Get a B, it doesn't raise the alarm. So I got the, the different exams, and I was ready for all three. So I did study a little bit, but I studied not righteously. Um, so I was ready for all three exams. And then I got my exam, and I'm like, oh, this is test B. And I got like five questions wrong intentionally. Next week, I'm in class hanging out. The TA says, hey, the professor wants you to see, see you in the office afterwards. I'm like, oh, I got work right after. 
the professor says it's urgent. And I'm like, well, I got work. So I don't go. Then I get an email. And then the email is like, you better come to my office. I want to talk to you about the exam. I'm like, oh. So I text the football player. I'm like, yo, what, what's going on? And he's like, I don't know. I got to see the office, too. I got to go to the office, too. I'm like, and there was another person we were cool with. Yo, I got to go to the office, too. I'm like, what? So I'm like, this is, this is going to be bad. So five of us have to go to, this, to the office. But I was the first one to go in. So I go into the office, and my professor sits me down and was like, so you cheated. I'm like, what? No. Cheated? I got an 82. Why would I? If I was going to cheat, I would get 100. He's like, interesting. So this person over here got an 82. Same way you got it wrong. And there were certain problems you had to write out. And they got exactly how, they wrote it out exactly how I wrote it out. That, that's just a coincidence. And he showed me another one. I'm like, and I'm like, if I snitch and say they cheated on me, the whole empire is going down. So I'm not going to do that. And then I look and he shows another one. And I'm like, yeah, we cheated. He's like, you know, you're going to get expelled. I'm like, this is not going to go good talking to my mom about this. And so all the guys, I think we actually didn't get expelled because of the football player. So all the guys are told we're going to get expelled. And so I'm sitting, I'm like, how do I explain this to my mom? I was thinking through the different ways of talking about how, like, school isn't even really worth it. Like, some of the most important people don't even have their college education. You know, Jay-Z's a billionaire. Like, we don't even got to worry about this school stuff. So I was thinking through the different ways of trying to explain it to my mother, because I'm like, this is the only person I fear, because I wasn't a Christian yet. So I had the fear of my mom, but not the fear of God. And then so I'm like, okay. The last guy comes out, and he calls us all back in. He says, I want all you guys to come back in. And he's like, okay, here's what you're going to do. All you guys failed. But I'm not going to expel you guys. And I was like, I wasn't a Christian. didn't really even believe in God. But I looked up and it pointed at something. I was like, this is amazing. And I walked away. And I, didn't, I had one less class, so my schedule was a little bit more free. I was like, this is awesome. And I was excited. I walked away and experienced mercy. But the professor also called me to righteousness by failing me. And I walked out of there, and you know, the next semester I became a follower of Jesus. I took that class again. I passed it with a C, which wasn't glorious, but amen. But I needed that moment. You know, since that moment, I've never cheated ever. Not even on my taxes. Some of you guys need to repent. Uh, <laughs> I've not cheated on finance. I just felt like at that point, my luck has ran short. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not cheating anymore. I don't want to get caught in this situation. Even now, in my 30s, I'll still be scared to tell my mom I got in trouble. <laughs> you see, as followers of Jesus, as followers of Jesus, we walk as he did in mercy and righteousness. Mercy is to be indulgent toward people, to be able to create space where people can experience God's goodness and love. But at the same time, we are always calling people to righteousness, never lowering God's standards, saying, hey, I'm going to be merciful here, but I still expect you to live how Christ is calling you to live. You see, this is the way of life. And we've been studying the gospel of Luke this whole time. And hopefully it's orienting your mind on what it means to follow Jesus and what it means to follow his way. We want to be followers of Jesus. We want to commit ourselves to following Jesus. Let's go to Luke chapter 9. We're going to pick up a little bit earlier in this story because this is an important story. Jesus finally gets into Jerusalem. Jerusalem, this is like probably say Sunday. He's going to be dead that Friday. 
he only has one week to live. So this is Jesus' last week before he is crucified. And he walks into Jerusalem. We're going to pick up actually in verse 41, but we're going to focus on 45 through 48. But we're going to pick up in verse 41. As Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it's hidden from your eyes. The day will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground, you and your children within your walls. They will leave. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. When Jesus entered the temple courts, he began to drive out those who were selling. As it is written, he said, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Every day he was teaching at the temple, but the chief priests and the teachers of the law and the leaders among the people were trying to kill him. Yet they could not find any way to do it because all the people hung on his words. Jesus says here, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. When Jesus walks into the city, he understands that this city is on a finite clock. He's like, this city is going to be destroyed. And he goes into the temple to, to, to have a prophetic display of what he thinks about the temple establishment. As we talked about a couple of weeks ago, the temple was the most important thing for the Israelite community. It was even higher than their view of scripture. Scripture was important, but the temple was the focal point where heaven and earth met, where people were able to sacrifice, where they were able to connect to the living God. And Jesus walks to the temple, and he drives out these sellers. Now, we really don't know what these sellers were selling. John Barclay, um, an Irish scholar, believes that they were selling these unblemished sacrifices so people could sacrifice, but people are coming from all over because this is Passover weekend. People are coming from all over the known world, and they are trying to offer up an unblemished sacrifice, and so these guys are raising the prices. It's like if we were here, anytime there's a natural disaster, the gas prices go up, and we even have hotlines that we could call people when they try to raise um, food prices. Like they were trying to spike the prices. That's what he believes. But there's really no first source to corroborate that belief. But that's what he believes. And so Jesus says, my house, this temple, the temple that um, Herod rebuilt, is supposed to be a house of prayer. But instead, it's a den of robbers. Jesus is quoting from Isaiah and Jeremiah. He's bringing these two passages together. Now, remember... A lot of times, once Jesus quotes a particular passage, because Luke believes we've been reading the Old Testament like every day and we're connected to these stories, instantly the whole passage is supposed to come to mind. You know, like if I say this little light of mine, many of you who know the song will say, I'm going to let it shine. Even my three year old knows that he just he goes with the song and he goes because he just knows. And this is the same thing. So when he shares these two passages here, the one in Isaiah and the one in Jeremiah, it's supposed to call the mind the context to help you better understand what he's talking about. So let's go to Isaiah 56. Isaiah 56. Now, if you are using your phone, that's I S A. They won't have any of the other letters. If you are using your Bible, it's the middle. You're either going to hit the Psalms or you're going to hit Isaiah. Seldomly you hit Job, but that's possible. Anything is possible. But we're going to go to Isaiah 56, beginning in verse 1. 
This is what the Lord says. Now, Isaiah's prophetic word is written in poetic prose, so you have to hear this as a poem that's being spoken. This is what the Lord says. Maintain justice and do what is right, for my salvation is close at hand. My righteousness will soon be revealed. Blesses the one who does this, the person who holds it fast, who keeps the Sabbath without desecrating it and keeps their hand from doing evil. Let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Let no eunuch complain. I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbath, who chooses what pleases me and holds fast to my covenant. To them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name. They will endure forever. And the foreigner who binds themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord, to be his servant, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating and hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in my house of prayer. Their burnt offering and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar. For my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. The sovereign Lord declared, he who gathers the exiles of Israel, I will gather still others to them besides those already gathered. The primary vision of this verse is that when God ends the exile, Isaiah is writing about a future time where the exile was going to happen and it was going to end. When God ends this exile, the people of Israel would be a light to the nation and people would come and feel like I feel completely and utterly accepted by the presence of God. And so what's happening here in the temple is not that. Jesus walks in, and if you know anything about their culture, it still was very much sectioned off. And even up until Acts chapter 15, they're still dealing really difficulty with how do we drawing people who are not necessarily Jews by birth? And so that's happening. That's the negative. I mean, that's, that was supposed to be the positive, but instead that's not happening. But instead, here's what the people have done. They've turned it into a den of robbers. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7. So when Jesus says this is supposed to be a house of prayer, he's quoting Isaiah. And when he says this is a den of robbers, he's quoting Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, verse 1. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. The gate at the Lord's house is the temple in Jerusalem. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless and the widow and do not shed innocent blood in this place. If you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place. The land I give to your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Will you still murder, commit adultery and perjury? Burn incense to Baal, follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and says we are safe? Safe to do all these detestable things? Has this house, which bears my name, become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. 
And Jeremiah is rebuking the Israelites in this season. It's a little bit before they get sent into exile because they have completely and utterly lost sight of the plot. What was supposed to be like you come here in the temple, the place where heaven and earth meet, you live as real image bearers now has become the place where perjury is taking place, where people are shedding blood of the innocent, where people are stealing, where people are worshiping other gods in the very presence of God. It is just it, it, it's, it's the definition of going left. And so Jeremiah rebukes them. This is something that I think followers of Jesus, we all could potentially struggle with. Yeah. Have a discipleship that distanced itself from actually obeying and following Jesus. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, a cultural disciple. You know, you're like, ah, you know, I pay my taxes. I don't cheat. And, you know, seldomly do I do anything wicked. But you seldomly do anything righteous either. You have a discipleship that is just different. And, you know, sometimes we prefer to <laughs> condemn the world. We prefer to talk about all the crazy things that the world is doing as opposed to really looking internally in our hearts and what God is calling us to repent of to faithfully follow him so we can live this life to the full. So there there's a preacher. He shared this illustration. He um, he had been preaching on whatever particular sermon topic he was preaching on. I think he, he said he was sharing about the gospel of John and a parishioner comes up to him and is like, Man, these have been good sermons or whatever, but you need to talk about sin. You need to talk about how crazy the world is. You need to talk about how evil it is out there and how nothing is going to change unless everyone repents. So the, 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 the pastor heard this and he said, oh, that's a really good idea. Let me sit down and think about it. So he calls him up the next day. He calls the guy. He's like, OK, tell me your top seven sins. He's like, what do you mean my top seven sins? The sins you struggle with the most. We're going to have a seven-part series, and it's going to be every single sin you mention that you struggle with. He's like, well, that, my sins are not the ones I'm too concerned about. I'm talking about, look at the, the stuff that's happening with gender. Look what's happening here. Look what's happening there. Look what, I want to talk about those things. No, no, no. Let's talk about your sins. For the next seven weeks, we're going to focus on your sins. Every single sermon will be about the areas you fall short. The guy said, we don't need to talk about sins anyway, man. Grace is good. And when he's like, you see, that's, that's how challenging it could be sometimes when we're challenged personally. We want to hear the sins that other people are doing and be like, yeah, we want to stand in judgment on their sins. But if I did a sermon series on the seven sins you struggle with consistently, you're probably shrinking your seat. Like, bro, you're coming too hard on that. While all the rest of us who don't struggle with embezzlement are like, yeah, get that embezzler, whoever that is. And you're like, I've been embezzling my whole life. I'm always saying embezzlement, but one day someone will be here and I'm going to offend you. <laughs> I say embezzlement because generally I don't think they'll show up. But one day someone's going to be an embezzler and they're going to really be offended that I keep picking on them. So shout out to you, embezzler. We think you could get the grace of God too. <laughs> We got to understand when Jesus says my house will be a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of robbers. He's not he's not coming at these guys in like a heavy handed way. He cried before he walked into the city. He looked at the city and he felt a heavy heart for where his people were not following the God that they serve. And so where Israel fell, Jesus became a model of success. Many of us are familiar with the Olympics. When the Olympic athlete for whatever country wins, that whole country wins. Jesus, in many ways, stands in for Israel. Israel did not, were not faithful to what God had called them to, but Jesus became faithful to what God had called them and was able to grant them the victory that they were looking for. But the religious leader's response to Jesus' 
clearing out the sellers and then teaching was to destroy him. It wasn't to repent. It wasn't to sit down and listen. While Jesus teaching in the, in the temple signals a proper vocation for that temple, these other religious leaders are like, I want to destroy this guy. I want to tear him in two. Like, who is he? How dare he walk in here and say we're a den of robbers? How dare he walks in here and calls my situation for what it is? Who is he? You know, Jesus judged the temple leaders and the authority figures with mercy and righteousness. Jesus was completely merciful and righteous in this situation. You might hear the righteousness. He's like, yeah, this is a den of robbers. This is tough. But where's the mercy? You know, what he said was going to happen happened 40 years after he died. 40 years after he died, rose from the dead and was ascended to the right hand of the father. It was a 40 year period between that prophetic statement and what actually took place. There was a ton of time for people to change. In Acts chapter six, you have these religious leaders coming to faith. Acts chapter six, verse seven, coming to faith. So he still opened up the door for them to enter into the kingdom and his disciples still were reaching out to those folks. Jesus begins his ministry after he's ascended with a deep focus on Jerusalem before it starts to spread to the entire world. Jesus, even after this hard teaching right here, was still trying to work with Jerusalem for the next 40 years before the temple was destroyed. Once the temple was destroyed, a good number of leaders were destroyed and people were harmed. His ministry was one of prayer that prompted biblical righteousness and justice. Jesus' ministry was being merciful but righteous. A quote from author and activist Shane Claiborne. I was just another believer, and I believed all the right stuff. That Jesus is the Son of God, that he died and rose again, and had become a believer. But I had no idea what it meant, or what it means to follow Jesus. People taught me what Christians believe, but no one told me how, to, how Christians live. In verse 48... When the spiritual leaders hears this teaching and instead say, I want to destroy Jesus, they are missing the plot. They are missing the point. And I think the same challenge exists today. There are a number of people here today who believe the right thing, but do they live what they believe? And that's challenging. That's challenging and it's heavy. Sometimes you just feel like, Man, let's just talk about the goodness. And I want you guys to experience the goodness. What God has on display is life to the full. But a big part of that is you being faithful to him. You will experience life to the full if you're faithful to him. And what makes it even harder is we are in an age known as post-Christianism. So here's what post-Christianism is. So before Christianity, Everyone, a lot of people believed in different things and certain things were just outlandish and we totally understood that that was wrong. Like it was not abnormal in the Babylonian culture. If your daughter disrespected you, you can cut an appendage off of her. That was just normal. You're like, hey, she disrespected me. Let me cut her arm off. If someone in your family disrespected someone, we read a couple of weeks ago, um, the prodigal son, if you did that in... One of the Ugaritic societies, you could die. And it was normal. It was normal. Same thing with slaves. They were less than people. They were, like, they were treated as properties. Some people even, some, some religions back then even thought that slaves were ancestors of demons. And that's why they were being punished as slaves. So you treated people how you wanted. Then Christianity did what it did over the course of 2,000 years. 
Now, most people, even if they're atheists, would never harm their daughter, like cut off an appendage if she disobeyed them. You'd go send them to a therapist. You'd be like, you need to go talk to someone and you need to get help. Like, disrespectful child. And you do that with your sons as well. But that's because of post-Christian. Like here now, most of us have the same morals, even if you don't follow Jesus. We all look at certain things and we're like, you don't do that. Like if I walked into someone's front door and kicked down and said, hey, I'm taking all your property because I'm stronger than you and I have an army. What's up? Every one of you are going to get on social media and be like, we need to stop that tyrant. Where there was a time where, hey, the strongest should get all the property and do everything. We all have Christian values that you shouldn't take from people. Now, imagine if I was stealing from people who needed stuff. Like, let's just say there was a welfare community and I was stealing their money. All of you would be like, that's wrong. Even if you're atheist, Buddhist, whatever, we'll all be like, that is historically wrong. We are now in a society, post-Christian, where we have very Christian morals, but it's not connected or tethered to the person of Jesus anymore. And so... When we talk about, I believe the right thing, but don't do the right thing, it's hard for us to really see a distinguishing marker as followers of Jesus. They're like, oh, we're the same. You just go to church on Sunday. I don't go to church on Sunday, but we're the same. We do exactly the same because Christianity has influenced this culture tremendously. However, Jesus is looking at a deeper level than what our culture considers. And life to the full is on display at a deeper level. So let's go to Luke 18. Luke 18, verse 9 through 14. To some who are confident of their own righteousness and look down on everyone else. Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. One a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even as this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but he beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. You know, we're talking about being merciful and righteous. As followers of Jesus, we are always prone to self-righteousness. That is probably a natural disposition, especially the longer you follow Jesus, that you're prone to self-righteousness. You say things like, thank God I'm not like this person. Thank God I'm not like. And you know what? Amen and God bless. That's because of the mercy and goodness of God, not because of anything you particularly are doing other than being faithful to who Jesus is. You see, Jesus isn't challenging whether these deeds are bad that the, the Pharisee does. He's like, that's. That's good. You, you do those good things. His, his issue is his heart posture. That you think you're actually better than this guy. You think you are better than this guy because you got an opportunity that he probably didn't get. And you think you're better than him. And he says one person, the one who couldn't even look up and just said simply that God have mercy on me, a sinner. He's like that person walked away right with me and not you. Which is challenging, especially because I'm pretty sure that guy is like. I'm trying really hard to be right with you where this other guy just, I don't know what he's doing, but he definitely walked away um, sad. You know, Jesus, 
called people to repent, but his spirit was attractive. Like repentance is a tough message today. Use that. Hear that word repentance. And man, it could even trigger certain people. They're like, yo, I I don't want to hear that word. That's a really tough word. But Jesus called people to repentance and people leaned in and they moved closer to him. But in his call to repentance, he was patient. He was kind. He was merciful. He was humble. But he also was righteous and just. Here, here's, here's what, when I say that, there's some of you who are prone on the righteousness and just side, and I love you. You need to be in this fellowship. You just heard me say, patient, kind, merciful, and just, and you're like, bro, you're too soft on that stuff. The whole church is going to get weak spiritually. We're not going to change the world. It's just going to be awful. You're basically encouraging and licensing people to get out there and be evil. And what, God loves them? He does love them, but he's going to judge them one day, and you better preach that too. Let's go to Romans chapter 6. I know, you're probably like, I can't stand hearing Steve speak. This this preacher of love. Love, love, love. Make me sick. I want the fire. (laughs) Tell me I'm going to burn. And don't tell me, but tell someone else they're going to (laughs) burn. So we can walk away feeling good about someone burning. Okay, Romans chapter 6, verse 1. What, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? By no means. We are those who died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of you who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We therefore buried with him through baptism into his death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. There is grace, there is mercy, but that doesn't mean we keep on sinning. And I want you to understand that sometimes we think, man, in view of God's judgment, we're going to change. It's in view of God's mercy. God's kindness leads to repentance. And we have to understand that sometimes we want to be like, God's threat of hell leads to repentance. For some people it does. You know, that's like, oh, I'm going to burn forever. I'm never going to do this. I don't even know if hell is going to be burning forever. If it's going to be destroyed temporarily. They're just saying That's neither here nor there. Now, there is the crew who are like, but still, we need to call people to this standard. I'm like the I'm like Jesus in the flesh. I never mess up. I never make mistakes like I got it all figured out. Let's go to Romans chapter two. And it's tough because I know you, you, you know, you take your discipleship serious. You really want to honor God. And that's a noble thing. But a word of caution, a word of caution. Romans chapter 2, verse 1. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For at whatever point you judge another, you are condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same thing. Let's go down to verse 21. So then, you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who preach against stealing, do you not steal? You who, say to, you who say that people should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who harbor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, do you dishonor God by breaking the law? In Romans chapter 3, Paul says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Sometimes we have to be very humble and remind people that you are not the standard. Jesus is the standard. 
No one needs to be like you. God did not create anyone to be like you. We follow you as you follow Christ. And if you're not following Christ, prayerfully you're humble enough to say, this is where it is. Jesus operated with mercy and righteousness. And he was gracious and he called people to righteousness. And we need to do the same thing. So I'm going to continue to remind people that you can experience God's kindness and God's love and his mercy. I think that's good for us. I think we need to hear that. But I'm also going to call people to God's standard. I'm going to try to imitate Jesus. I'm going to say, man, you got caught in adultery. I don't condemn you. Now leave your life of sin. I don't condemn you. Leave your life of sin. I want to encourage you. I want to love you through that hard time. And I get it. It can be very hard to practice kindness and mercy to people who consistently harm you or people who potentially harm you. And yet we don't follow the world. We follow Jesus. Jesus is who we're following. Jesus offers us life to the full, not the world. And when I say the world, I'm talking about any ideology that is opposite of what Jesus is calling us to. We have to understand, too, sin is destructive. I think if we are in a relationship with people who are entangled and trapped in sin, we do them a disservice by not being candid with them. Yeah. And saying this is destructive behavior. This is going to not only harm you temporarily and those around you, it's going to have long lasting effects if you don't change. But we do it in a manner that builds their faith, hope, and love. But what about, I want to be very clear, I'm talking to Christians, talking to Christians. I'm talking to followers of Jesus who are engaging with other people who are following Jesus. But what about those who have said, I don't want to follow Jesus. I don't want his standards on me. I don't want his way and his will on me. You could practice his mercy and righteousness, but that's not my covenant. That's not my God, and I don't want it. Our role is to be sought in light of the world. And there is a distinction between those who follow Jesus and those who don't. And we've got to be very clear about that. And I would add a third, a third group, what I call, what other people call, nominal Christians. A nominal Christian is a Christian in name only. You know, you fill out your little scantron. You're like, what age are you? What's this? What's that? And then you're like, what political party? What religious affiliation? And you like they got like thirteen, and you're like, I'm not sure. Oh, Christian, bam! You circle it, and you just keep moving, and you go for it, right? How do you know if someone's a nominal Christian? You can't. It's not like people, unless someone is wearing a shirt, Christian in name only. You can't identify that. It's only a fellowship. Fellowship with them over a course of time, maybe two weeks, maybe six months. You start to see, oh, when I call you to follow Jesus, you always give me a reason why you're not gonna follow Jesus. Oh, you're nominal. You don't need to make that de- declaration, though. You don't need to be like, hey, you're a nominal Christian. <laughs> maybe you, if you have intimacy with them, maybe you do make that declaration. Like, oh, you're a nominal. And that's okay. Jesus still loves you. Um, but you need to repent. <laughs> but it's really important. And so how do we engage people who are not followers of Jesus? Whether your classmates, whether your um, um, co-workers, your neighbors, maybe even family members. Matthew 5, verse 13 through 16. This is the Sermon on the Mount. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot. Verse 14. 
You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl, but instead they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify God, glorify your Father in heaven. Live our lives in such a way that people see and glorify God. Live our lives in such a way that when they come in contact with us, our fellowship becomes healing power for them. Our love becomes a balm for their soul. Our justice becomes a sweet fragrance in fellowship with them. You know, a lot of times we do need to point people to the scriptures and what Jesus is calling people to. But our lives need to faithfully match what we're calling people to. Especially in a, in a low Christian environment like Portland, Maine. Our lives need to show that there is a resurrection that we're looking forward to. We need to lift up Jesus honestly and faithfully and allow them to explore him. Explore all his ways through studying the scriptures, through looking at his teaching, but reminding them and encouraging them that this is life and life to the full. The the church's job is not to be a political arm of anybody. The church's job is to be an alternative community built on following the teachings and ways of Jesus. We do that. People will say, hey, this is different. This is something I'm looking for. And I've shared this before. The way that the married folks that I grew up around, they weren't really married. And if they were married, they hated each other. When I came into the church and saw different marriages, it blew me away. I talked about it for about two to three weeks, how blown away I was by it the different marriages in our fellowship in in South Florida. Alternative community. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 5. Because some of you still might feel like, man, but we got to say something about what's happening out there. We got to say something about the world and the evil and all the heinous things that are happening out there. 1 Corinthians 5, beginning in verse 12. This is a passage Paul is having difficulty with um, this church here, and they're having difficulty with different members. And they're having a, have a, a member in their fellowship leave. They're, they're basically excommunicating this member because he's not living according to the standard that he said when he said Jesus is Lord. But Paul says something very important here in verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked person from among you. What business is it of us to judge those outside the church? I would add one particular caveat to that. If someone is doing something that brings immediate harm to an individual, I think justice and love requires us to step in. But if someone is just of a different ideology and they're doing things differently, if it's not immediate harm and you got to gauge personally what you think immediate harm may be, let them live. Let them live. Hopefully your life, your alternative life is such a light and such salt that they're like, what's going on over here? I want to imitate this person. I want to live like this person. And this is tough for some of us, especially those of us who just have a natural inclination toward justice and you just want everyone on the same page you want everyone just like man not just not just unity but uniformity i want everyone to be the same 
<laughs> You're never going to get that world. <laughs> Even in new creation, God appreciates the diversity of all these people, different tongues, languages, and tribes. You're never going to get the same. And so I pray for you that you would alleviate your heart from that burden. But <laughs> if you can't, then amen. Uh, if someone asks you, tell them the gospel. Tell them that Jesus is king. Tell them that his salvation is, a, is rescue for your soul. It has rescued your family. It is rescuing you consistently. Tell them that you looked at the present reality, what people are doing currently. You saw it and you made a judgment call that that was bankrupt. That that wasn't good for you. That that wasn't going to produce human flourishing. It wasn't going to produce a life and a life to the full. Share with them. I live a life of sacrificial love and that has filled me up in ways I've never thought before. Jesus' life is attractive. It really is. Those of you who sat down and read the Gospels, even some of Jesus' biggest critics, they read the four Gospels, they're like, I don't see his followers always doing that, but if someone actually lived like this, this is amazing. Jesus' life is truly amazing. Jesus is calling us to follow him, not just in behavior, but in our thoughts and attitudes as well. How do you become the merciful and righteous person? In Hebrews, it says God judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. When Jesus said the hard thing that this place is a den of robbers, he cried before. His heart was, I don't want any of these guys to perish, but this is just the reality. I'm going to say the hard truth. I think some of us, we could follow the behavior, but not have the thoughts and the attitude of Jesus. And it comes off as harsh, and it comes off as judgmental, it comes off as critical. It comes off as if you have no pulse. Some of us can have the thoughts and attitude of Jesus, and we like want people to know him. We want people to be saved, but we never call anyone to righteousness. And in so many ways, we're just leading them down their destruction with warm and fuzzies. Warm and fuzzies are not good if people are walking toward destruction. We need to imitate his thoughts and his attitude. Our mercy and our righteousness, the way we are merciful and the way we are righteousness will reveal Christ to so many people. That professor who showed me, I don't, I don't think they were a Christian, but that professor who didn't fail me showed me and gave me an opportunity to change my life. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a college degree, but I probably would end up with more money anyway. Um, they, probably, they probably cursed my life by not kicking me out. Um, the call, the way of life, following Jesus, it's really tough. It's really tough. It's worth it. And God strengthens us through the work of his spirit. I want us to take a moment of reflection. We're going to think about maybe an area that we need to experience God's goodness.